The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from John 21, 4-17. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Jesus said, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, this morning I received a lot of text messages from a lot of you uh, reminding me that uh, we are not alone, uh, but that we are together around the city of Nashville and some joining us from other places celebrating an empty tomb. One text message this morning said, praying for all of you today, this is a wild time. God is working though. And my response was, just keep reminding me and reminding us that there are human beings on the other side of these cameras. 
So glad you're joining us from your living rooms and, and wherever else you may be. Uh, and uh, I just want to, um, I guess, start by telling you who are part of Christ Presbyterian Church how much I miss you and how much we miss you uh, who have been up here doing our various parts during this service. I actually used the words with my wife, Patty, last week, I am starting to feel lonely for our people at Christ Presbyterian Church. And I've gotten similar messages. How much longer do you think it is before we can all be back together again? And I just want to say, starting off in this message, that um, that feeling of longing and that feeling of being lonely for one another in the absence of one another is not because there's something wrong with us. It's because there's something right with us. Uh, even into paradise at the very beginning, God spoke the words, it is not good for human beings to be alone. And so can I ask you a favor? Uh, I would like to see you on my screens later on today in the same way that you're watching me on yours and listening to me on yours. If you could go on, on your social media channels, Facebook, especially Instagram, Twitter, wherever you are online, take a picture of where you are right now in your living room, the people that you're with and, and that you're gathered with us, take a picture and then in the notes under that picture before you post it, Include the hashtag CPC Nashville online, hashtag or number sign CPC Nashville online. And that way, anybody who inputs that hashtag into the social media channels will get to see your pictures and all the other pictures. I would love to see your faces. Uh, could you do me that favor and do the pastors and, and musicians and others here who are um, are are seen by you, let us see you as well. We'd be so grateful for that. And then celebrate each other as you log on and look up the hashtag as well. But I wanna start uh, this way with regard to the day uh, that we call Easter. There are two reasons why I especially love Easter. One is that it reminds me that Christianity is a well-anchored historic faith built around a miracle called the resurrection. You know, Peter, the apostle, who we'll talk about here in a minute, said this in one of his letters, we did not follow clever stories when we made known to you the coming and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Christianity is built on historic eyewitness accounts by people who were so convinced that they experienced Jesus risen from the dead that they gave their lives for it. It's a faith that allows you to bring your intellect through the door and not check your intellect out at the door. Did you know that there are Harvard and Oxford scholars who embrace and believe these things based on the historic record. Did you know that all Ivy League universities except for one were founded by people of Jesus Christ who believed in the historic resurrection of Christ? 
I embrace it for the same reason Francis Schaeffer said he embraces it. He said to his wife, there's one reason and one reason alone to be a Christian, because it's true. I hope you're believing that with me. There's good reason to believe that with me today. The second thing I love about Easter and about Christianity in general and about Jesus is that it's for screw-ups. It's for screw-ups, not for good people, but for people who recognize that they have fallen short of what it means to be truly and thoroughly good. There's actually a, another church here uh, in Nashville that has a mantra and it goes like this. I am a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright and anyone can get in on this. Isn't that something else? It's a little bit irritating and disorienting. I'm a complete idiot, but then it's also incredibly hopeful for those of us who are in touch with that reality of ourselves that we're not what we're supposed to be. The future is incredibly bright because what happened to Jesus is now promised to those who trust in him after our own death. And anyone can get in on this. And if there ever was the telling of a historic account that proves that anyone can get in on this, it's the one that Emily just read to us a moment ago and that I get to explain. In this account, we see Peter, who only a couple of days prior in cowardice denied Jesus three times publicly and called curses down on himself. Cursed be me if I ever had anything to do with that man, he said to a crowd of people. He was ashamed, he was embarrassed to be associated with Jesus who at that time was headed toward the cross. But then... Everything shifts, everything changes. And Peter and also all the other disciples who also had abandoned Jesus in his hours, hour of need now encounter him risen on the side of the sea. And what they experience from him is three movements. And these movements, you don't see any scolding, you don't see any lectures, you don't see any shame on yous, you don't see any of that. What you see in these three movements are the movement of tenderness, the movement of affirmation, and the movement of grace. And so what I want to do is talk to you about these three movements, which are accessible to anyone, especially those who have felt at some point along the way, I'm a complete idiot. But my future can be incredibly bright because it says right here that anyone, even the likes of Peter, can get in on this. Let's look at his tenderness first. Did you notice that Jesus' first words to his disciples since the moment they betrayed him and abandoned him just a few days prior were these words, children and come. Children and come. Let's look at those two words. Children, that's a, that's a familiar term a familial term. That, that's, a, that's a term of endearment. It's an affectionate address. If you have shame, if you have regret, if you have fear, 
If there's, any, if there's ever been anything about you that you don't like, that you don't respect, anything about you that you don't look up to, but that you, even you look down upon, and, and maybe you even feel stuck in that thing. This is how God wants to relate to you in that place. And from that place, not just when you're at your best, but when you're at your worst. J.I. Packer, the great uh, scholar and theologian said this, if you want to judge how well people understand Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as father. Father is the Christian name for God, father. You know, our community at Christ Presbyterian, we, we just finished a series on the book of Galatians and right in the middle of Galatians is this incredibly hopeful statement. You are no longer slaves to fear. You are no longer slaves to fear, but you have been given the spirit of adoption that says that you are the sons and daughters of God. But he comes to us as father, but he also comes to us with the attributes of a tender mother. In the prophecy of Isaiah, the 49th chapter, the Lord speaks through the prophet and says, can a mother forget the child at her breast? Even if she forgets, I, the Lord your God, will never forget you. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus relates to us as an older brother. It says that he is not ashamed to call people like Peter, to call people like you and me when we're at our worst, when we're faced with our own shame, our own regret, our own fears. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. That's Hebrews chapter 2. Family language is the language that he comes to us with on the heels of us betraying him. If you were asked, those of you who are Christian, if you were asked, what do you think is the hardest thing about being a Christian? Or maybe those of you who are considering Christianity, but you're not sure. And if you were asked, what do you think might be the hardest thing about being a Christian? I would suspect that a lot of us would say the hardest thing about being a Christian is keeping the commands of God. Honor the Sabbath, do justly and love mercy. That means repent when we've hurt individuals or communities of people and not only repent, but also do the good and faithful work of repairing what it is that our injuries have, have done to other people. That's hard to think about. The command to forgive those who've hurt you just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The command to give generous sums of your money away to the Lord's work and to those in need. The command to love your enemies. The command to tell other people about Jesus Christ and to try to persuade them to believe in Christ with you these socially terrifying things. For Peter, 
The hardest thing, at least for a season, or so he thought, was to have courage. And so he abandons Jesus so that he could protect himself from being spoken poorly of, from being labeled unpopular. But then you look at the book of Acts and you see Peter after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you see a man who has courage like no other, who is more bold in his faith and in his courage than just about anybody you've ever seen before. What happened? Here's what happened. Peter learned how to do the hardest thing it is to do as a Christian. And the hardest thing that, that there is to do as a Christian is not to keep the commands of God. The hardest thing to do as a Christian is to believe that God loves you. That's the hardest thing that you will ever be asked to do by God is to believe that the God of the universe who knows everything about you loves you. It's right here in verse seven. This is how John thinks of himself. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is a man who had abandoned Jesus a few days ago, just like Peter did. And yet here he is knowing that Jesus is the kind of God who's not gonna hold that against him. Because nothing is ever gonna separate the beloved disciple from the love of his savior. And when you are able to, to accomplish the hardest thing that there is to accomplish as a Christian, to believe that God loves you in the way that God says he loves you, his commands become easy, effortless. You know, the Bible itself says his commands are not burdensome when we're able to behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. You know, it's not only that his, his wish becomes our command, his commands become our wish when we're able to do the hardest thing, to believe that we are loved. Children, that's the first word. The second word is Come. Specifically, come have breakfast with me. And Jesus has a table. It's all set for them. The table is actually a really big deal in the Bible. We at Christ Presbyterian Church, when we gather together, we gather around the Lord's table every single Sunday. Miss that terribly. Lonely for that experience with you as well. Cannot wait to be around the table of the Lord and his grace and his body and his blood together with you again. The table is a centerpiece of what it means to belong to Jesus and to have Jesus belong to you. The table signifies friendship in that culture. You know, the religious people, the judgy people, this was why they were suspicious of Jesus because of the kinds of people that Jesus would welcome to the table with him. They even protested publicly in Luke chapter 15, the second verse. They said, look at this man. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's no way he could be from God if he eats with that kind of person. 
This is your God. He loves you. Can you believe it? You know, Mr. Rogers has uh, enjoyed uh, post-mortem from the grave. Perhaps he's looking down on all of this. He's, he's enjoyed a new resurgence of his own popularity in recent years. There was a documentary uh, that was done on his life a couple of years ago, and then uh, I think it was last year, a blockbuster movie was released starring Tom Hanks playing Fred Rogers of the famed Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Mr. Rogers was all about the children. Children and come were, were, were two of the biggest words in Mr. Rogers' vocabulary. But what most people don't know is what motivated Mr. Rogers to love children so much and to be so kind to children was anger and pain. First, the pain that he'd experienced as a child himself when he was bullied as a young boy who was overweight. And his peers and his classmates would, would mercilessly call him Fat Fred. And that became the name that was given to him as a young boy, Fat Fred. And he carried that wound with him into his adult life. And, and like Jesus did, took, does, took a wound and, and turned it in to an occasion to love and to be tender to all who would receive the tenderness. The other emotion that drove him to be so tender, Fred Rogers, was anger. He was angry because he believed that children were not respected nearly to the degree that he believed that children should receive respect. Children have so much to teach us. Even Jesus, you know, Fred Rogers would say as a Presbyterian minister, even Jesus said that we can't even understand the kingdom of God unless we learn to enter like little children. Do you know what was at the center of Fred Rogers' vocabulary? Three words. He said it on most of his broadcasts, maybe all of them. I like you. I like you. How would your life be different if your self-concept was this after your worst moment, as it was for the disciple John, I am a beloved disciple. That's my identity. That's who I am. It's not only what God says about me, it's what I believe about me because God says it about me. You know, we sing the famous him and a lot of children have rallied around this one over the centuries. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But did you know this as well? Jesus likes you, this I know, for the Bible shows you so. He doesn't just love you, he likes you. How would your life be different? How would your posture be different? What, where would your courage level be? How would you be prone to treat other people if you believed more deeply than you believed anything else that God loves you and God likes you? You know, Brennan Manning, who was, uh, as a recovered alcoholic, said these words about the tenderness of God. Tenderness is the security of knowing that God thoroughly and sincerely likes you. And then he went on to say, define yourself radically as one who is beloved by God because every other identity is an illusion. The movement of tenderness. 
The second movement is the movement of affirmation. Peter desperately craved affirmation from his Lord. You can see it in his body language. You can hear it in his, his words. He's almost to the point of tears when Jesus asks him repeatedly, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What's going on there? Well, here's what's going on. Peter has come to terms recently with the fact that he, Peter, is a walking contradiction. He is a duplicitous man. You know, like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, he wants to do one thing, but he does the opposite. And what he hates to do, he does. Peter's life is filled with those experiences. At one point, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter stood up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you have discerned rightly, Peter, and from this point forward, your name is going to be Rock. And on that profession, that confession of yours, I am going to build my entire church. And we're still, we're here right now because of that conversation and that promise made by Jesus to Peter that day, whom he called Rock. But in that same conversation, the next moment, Jesus said, oh, by the way, Here's what it's going to look like for me to be the Christ. The mobs are going to put me to death. I'm going to be killed. And then Peter challenges Jesus and says, no, sir, not you, Lord. Never in a million years will you be put to death. Don't you remember what I just said? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus transitions from calling Peter the rock to calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. You have in mind the things of man, the acquisition and exertion of power. I need to stay on the journey that God has me on. My descent into weakness is how I'm going to save the world. There will be no Easter power without Good Friday humiliation. There's another occasion where where Jesus was predicting to his disciples, all of you are going to fall away. All of you are going to betray me. And Peter says, not me. These guys, of course, I, I can see why you would say that about them. All, all of these will fall away. But Lord, I will go to the death with you. And Peter's denial and betrayal of Jesus was three times worse than Judas's. Judas betrays him once. Peter betrays him three times consecutive, premeditated. And here Peter is in this situation after Christ is risen, it dawns on him that the guy on the side of the beach is the risen Christ. They've already witnessed him a couple of times prior, so he, they already knew that Christ was alive. But you can see still in Peter how desperately he is to prove himself. You know, the others are moving the boat toward the shore, Jesus, or, or Peter strips himself, dives into the water and swims. He's got to be the standout. He's got to be the one who, who, who with exclamation point says, I love you more than anyone. Don't you see? It's almost like he's trying to crawl out of the hole that he dug for himself just a couple of days prior. And then Jesus has his number. Peter, do you really love me more than these guys? Do you love me more than these? 
like you've always said, like your love is the greatest love for me. And Peter seems to stick to his guns. Yes, I love you, Lord. No, but do you love me? Yes, but, but, but do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. You know, every human heart is desperate for a good performance review. And right here, Peter is after a good performance review, even still. I mean, this, this happened with both of our daughters. One of our daughters in particular, if she would disobey and we would express, hey, you're disobeying, she would get quiet and then a moment or two later she would say, are you happy at me? And this is what we're always saying, isn't it? When we walk into a room, when we're faced with another person, when we're quiet in our thoughts with God, you happy at me? Jesus' surprise answer is yes. Remember his very first words after being betrayed by all of these men were children and come. And then he gives them credit to top that off. He gives them credit for something they didn't accomplish. These are professional fishermen. And it says they've been fishing all night because at nighttime is when the fish come out. At nighttime is when you're going to get the catch. And it says that after an entire night of fishing, during prime time, the number of fish that they had caught was exactly zero. And then in the daytime, where typically you wouldn't catch a whole lot of fish, the man from the side of the sea says, throw your nets in the water. And so they throw their nets in the water and the net immediately fills with fish and they haul it in, they count the fish. Some people have wondered, you know, what's the significance of, of the number 153? Here's the significance. If you catch a lot of fish, you're going to count them. That's what fishermen do. Because you need a good fishing story, right? Especially if it's true. But here's what Jesus says next. It's in verse 10. Bring the fish that you just caught. So Jesus, here he is, telling a bunch of failed fishermen to bring the fish to him that he just made happen, but he said, bring to me what you just caught. You know, I remember one Easter Sunday, this was back when we were still in New York City, and I was singing an Easter hymn in my church, and I'm one, I'm, there are a lot of things about me that I'm not proud of, and one of them is my singing voice. And there was, I noticed, this bellowing voice behind me. And I turned around and realized it was an award-winning opera singer. And I thought to myself, just for a split second, I hope that everybody in our section thinks that what's coming out of this guy's mouth is coming out of mine. You know, let me get a little bit closer to him in hopes that maybe the people around me will think that I'm a good singer. Sounds pathetic, I know. It sounds as pathetic as Peter saying, everybody else will fall away, but not me. It sounds as pathetic as Peter jumping out of the boat 
and swimming toward Jesus. And I'll tell you why it's pathetic in a minute. It's valiant, but it's also pathetic. I'll tell you why in a minute. But here's the point here. Jesus doesn't need our fish. He doesn't need our fish. And if we have fish, it's, it's fish that he's given to us. So we're just giving back to him what he's already given. He doesn't need fish though. He's cooking fish right now. He has fish already. You know, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, we sometimes are told that God has no hands except our hands. And then he goes on and says, what a load of rubbish. Whose hands made the sun rise this morning? Whose breath guided us to think and pray and love and hope? Who is Lord of the world anyway? And yet here we have Jesus treating children like lords. Bring me what you caught. When everybody there knows these are all Jesus's fish. There's such dignity in that statement. There's such affection. There's such affirmation. And that's actually what it means to live with Christian identity. Everything that Jesus has accomplished has been credited to you. And every failure of your life has been laid on Jesus and he's borne the burden. That's what happened on Good Friday. That's the significance of Good Friday. God will not punish us for what our sins deserve because Jesus took the burden for all that our sins deserve. And then God takes Jesus' righteousness and perfection and beauty and his catch of fish and lays it on us. And so in the mind of God, in the eyes of God, everything that's true of Jesus is also true of you. Bring me the fish that you caught. Bring me the world that you created. Bring me the galaxies that you spoke into existence. Bring me your perfect record of righteousness. Bring me your impeccable love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Bring me that mighty act that you accomplished of walking on water and calling Lazarus out of the tomb and so on. Do you understand how much he loves you? Do you understand how much he likes you? Not because of the righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy and kindness. It's a great mystery. Which brings us to the final movement, which is a movement of grace. Peter's act of enthusiasm is also an act of selfishness. Did you think about the fact, did you realize this? I haven't realized it in, in over 30 years of reading the Bible until this past week. Peter diving into the water, swimming to the Lord, means that Peter is also leaving all the other disciples to do the hard work of dragging that many pounds of fish, it says, a hundred yards. That's the length of a football field to Jesus. You guys got this. I'm going to go be with the Lord. So even in his enthusiastic pursuit and worship of Jesus, it's tainted with selfishness. Just like yours and just like mine, even our best worship needs the grace of Jesus to cover it and to make it beautiful in the sight of God. And that's precisely what he does. And then when Peter arrives to the shore, he arrives to a familiar scent. 
the scent of burning charcoal. The last time that, that Peter experienced burning charcoal and had that same sensory experience was when he was warming himself around a charcoal fire that had been stoked by the enemies of Jesus. And now a couple of days later, he's warming himself around the charcoal fire, same scent around a fire that had been stoked by Jesus himself. So much symbolism, so much grace. And then Jesus puts his thumb on the bruise in Peter's soul. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Don't abandon them. Tend to my sheep. Don't betray them. Feed my sheep. Don't starve them as you did to me. Treat my bride better than you have treated me. He's putting his thumb on Peter's bruise. For every betrayal, Jesus asks, do you love me? And of course, Peter answers, you know, you know I do. And of course, Jesus does. And so he gives him a job. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. You know, Christianity, like a lot of world religions, gets criticized sometimes for having too much to say about the concept of human sin. But what Peter discovers here is that he can only be electrified and lifted up and experience life to the full and be motivated to be the kind of person that God intends him to be to the degree that he knows how unworthy he is. That's how it works. You know, one, one pastor named Jack Miller said that if you're a Christian, you ought to cheer up because you are at the same time infinitely worse than you think you are and infinitely more loved than you ever dared to hope. You know, Paul the Apostle put it this way, where, where our sin abounds, where specifically our awareness of our sin abounds, the grace of God superabounds. You know, Jesus' message to Peter is the same message that would turn Peter into a man of courage who would then be willing to give his life for Christ as the Roman Emperor Nero executed him for his faith on an upside-down cross because Peter didn't regard himself as being worthy to be crucified right side up as his Lord was. So he asked to be crucified upside down by the Roman emperor Nero for his faith and for his claim that Christ had risen from the dead, for his claim that Christ is king, that Christ is the everlasting empire in AD 64. But what gave Peter that courage is this word from Jesus, this message from Jesus. Peter, you need me more than you love me. And it will never be the opposite. You need me more than you love me. And then Peter got unstuck. And now, like I said a week or two ago, People all over the world are naming their sons after Peter and their dogs after Nero. Behold your God. Easter means that Jesus is risen from the dead. It also means that his tenderness and affirmation and grace is there for anyone, including complete idiots like me. 
But Easter is also the scars of Jesus made visible. The text mentions that this is the third appearance of Christ. The first was when the courageous women showed up as the men were in hiding. And they were the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection. And then the second was when Jesus appeared to the disciples. This famous account where another disciple named Thomas In the same way that Jesus says, I love him, Thomas says, I don't. I need a sensory experience if I'm going to continue to buy in. I need to see the risen Christ myself. I need to see the scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side from the spear from when he was crucified, and I need to touch him. And that's precisely what Jesus gives to him as a sensory experience. See with your eyes, Thomas, come touch with your hands. But what's remarkable to me is that Thomas says these words, unless I see, he doesn't say unless I see the resurrected Christ. He says, unless I see the scars, I will not believe. And so Jesus shows him the scars. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen these things and believe. Blessed even more are those who have not seen these things and have believed. And about the scars of Jesus, I'll close with this. You're about to experience the highlight of today's service, in my opinion. In the year 1919, the Reverend Edward Shalito wrote a poem And it was a poem that was inspired by a war-torn land as men, soldiers in particular, wounded soldiers and soldiers in body bags were, were being brought home from the trench warfare of World War I. And he wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars. Now, I'm part of a, a men's Bible study group and Uh, One of the men in that group shared this poem from Reverend Shalito called Jesus of the Scars with our whole group. And one of the songwriters in that group, whose name is Tom Douglas, took a day or two and put that poem to music. And in collaboration with Mary Marguerite and Madeline and William Hall, uh, Tom is going to sing that song to us now for our encouragement. He's risen, but he's kept his scars to help us understand that he sympathizes with our weakness. Behold the scars of Christ.